Hey, welcome to The Scrum, the WGBH podcast where we talk about politics from Beacon Hill to the Beltway. I'm Adam Riley, and in this installment, we're going to tackle what might be the biggest question in Massachusetts politics today. I'm talking, of course, about whether a credible Democrat's going to make a run against Governor Charlie Baker in 2018. And if one does, whether he or she will have any chance of actually winning. Peter Kadzis and I kicked it around with Democratic mastermind John Walsh, who helped Deval Patrick win two terms in the corner office, and also ran the Mass Democratic Party for a while, and Professor Aaron O'Brien, who chairs the political science department at UMass Boston. Take a listen. You know, just it, sure. it was it, some of the people like Adam and stuff had covered them out in the field. This was the first time, and I was very impressed with him, but didn't have any way. You didn't to, know to, his grammar of communication. Yeah, his, the, the, his body grammar, so to speak. As you guys know, what we're hoping to kick around today is, uh, I guess, a, a few related questions, maybe three related questions. Is Charlie Baker beatable when he runs for reelection? What kind of candidate would be best situated to make a credible run against him? And what kind of campaign would he or she need to run to be successful? So why don't we just start right off the bat with question one, whether he is or is not beatable. Either one of you can feel free to hop in. I know your answer. I'm guessing I know your answer, but I'm not 100 percent sure. Okay. So John or Aaron, um, sure. take it away. OK. Is Charlie Baker beatable? It is an uphill battle. Um, the guy has approval readings through the roof that literally every governor in the United States wants. He's at 72%. That said, um, we're two years out. There's a lot of independent and unenrolled voters. Um, the Democrats have the structural advantage of a great ground game, and um, they'll have lots of quality candidates running. So I think it is an uphill battle. And I will say, if the T goes south or north, depending on the metaphor, uh, this winter, <laughs> or next, then he's really beatable. Hold that thought about all the qu uh, quality candidates we're going to be running because I'm mm -hmm. really eager to hear who they are. So let's come <laughs> yes. back to that in a second. John, what do you say? Of course, if the T's running north and south or east or west is really the question. It's, uh, so the, um, But if, um, every politician is beatable, right? Charlie Baker's poll numbers are off the top. He and George H.W. Bush compare notes about that all the time. George H.W. Bush's numbers hit 92 and within two years, he was enjoying and really has done a great job as an ex-president. And uh, those of us who are partisan Democrats are hoping to give that same uh, uh, nice retirement to Governor Baker in two years. But of course, he's beatable. Do you know, and I don't know the answer to this question, if there's any precedent for a governor with the approval ratings that Baker has right now, and I'm talking a governor, not a president of the mm -hmm. United States, losing a bid for re-election two years later? I don't know. There may well be. I may just, well be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure. So uh, let's go back right off the top to your assertion, Aaron O'Brien, that there are going to be a <laughs> slew of fine candidates oh, taking no. on Charlie Baker. I know I'm, I'm exaggerating I, yeah, I, for a fact. I, I mean, I think that's the sneaky. Democrats' problem, right? Because um, politicians, by their very nature, are risk adverse. There's certainly a quality bench of candidates in Massachusetts. Most of them have more interest in um, federal roles, legislative roles. Why go after, you know, you don't go after David Ortiz's position as a DH. You go after the weakest player on the team. So I think that the Democrats' problem is 
is getting a good candidate to run. They'll be a sacrificial lamb, but it's rather getting that quality candidate that has name recognition and can go toe-to-toe -to -toe with him. So the real question here is the quality candidate. Of course, the Democrats can field a candidate. Who would that roster of potential quality candidates include? Some names spring to my mind, but who would you put on there? Um, I think Juliet Kayyem is one. Um, a lot of people forget that that she, you know, ran for governor. Um, she didn't make it at post-convention. She's somebody um, people have talked about. Seti Warren, um, Dan Wolf might be back in. Um, so there, those are three candidates that have strong Democratic um, sort of credentials. And the reason I say Kay, Juliet Kayyem is she has more of uh, the last three years or two years, I should say, she's um, become more of a Boston and Massachusetts press. Um, presence she about spent her. spent a lot of time here at WGBH yes, in this very studio, in fact, yeah. Uh, and she's a female. Uh, we've never had a female governor. Um, so there's uh, some excitement there. And I think even though Charlie Baker is so popular, it's important to remember he only won by two points. Yeah, I do forget that sometimes. Mm -hmm. I'll confess. No, just, just before we move on, the candidates who might be capable of making a run against Baker, but you think probably have ambitions that are federal in nature, who would those be? Joe well, Kennedy? Joe obviously. Kennedy, Seth Moulton, Moore Healy. Um, if any three of those folks were on, Democrats would be thrilled. But I think all three of those folks would be incredibly foolish to run. Well, and not only does Moore Healy perhaps, I'll accept your mm -hmm. premise that she has federal ambitions, but she's also one of these made men and women that Charlie Baker has created during his time in office, Democrats who he lavishes praise on and who lavish praise on him. I have heard them speak so glowingly of each other and the work they're doing on the opioid epidemic in particular. I remember at the unveiling of uh, the big uh, legislation that was passed to, to fight the opioid epidemic. I can't remember exactly Healy's words, but it was something like, this governor gets it. He is all in on this issue. So that's another problem, which would also apply to someone like Boston Mayor Marty Walsh. Not that he's thinking about running for governor, but how do you run against a guy who has been your de facto best political buddy? Well, I'll tell you, I, I don't think that Erin and I are going to disagree about much today. But one thing she said I do disagree with, which is that the, the defining the Democrats' biggest problem in winning the governor's race. Uh, the biggest problem for the Democrats in Massachusetts is it's really hard to elect a Democrat governor of Massachusetts. Did you say a Democrat governor instead of a Democrat? Oh, you mean I say. I thought you were using the Fox News. Yes. You said psychotic. <laughs> oh, come on, Adam. <laughs> that was good. Taking it back. It why is, is it so hard? Well, I, I think there's a lot of potential reasons why. But the first thing you need to do when you have a problem is to understand it and acknowledge it. So let's acknowledge that in the last 50 years, there have been seven Republican governors of Massachusetts and three Democrats if you concede that Ed King was a Democrat, who became a Republican almost immediately after leaving office. So in the course of 50 years, eight to two, in the course of 25 years, five Republicans, Mike Dukakis and Deval Patrick. So electing a Democratic governor, which we all start off as, well, of course, we're the bluest of the blue, we're the crazy liberals, we are blah, 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 blah. <laughs> that a series of assumptions is part of our problem. So Let's understand that in those 50 years, almost three dozen Democrats sought the governorship. And a large majority of them were very popular, well-known, excellent politicians with all the advantages you think you bring to the game. So that's one of the first things. I mean, <clears throat> I think that um, I appreciate uh, the, the Governor Baker's popular numbers. 
I don't think I appreciate them as much as he does, honestly. And I think one of his challenges as he seeks a second term, assuming he does, is the degree to which he likes being the most popular governor in America. Why do you and Peter hop in at any time because I'm not giving you a chance to, to get in here yet, but – why do you think that Charlie Baker has a self-referential love of his popularity numbers? What does he say or do to indicate that to you? I, so I'm not sure I'd call it self-referential. I think he's actually a pretty humble guy. If I were to describe Governor Baker politically, to me, as I look at him, I think he's fragile politically. He knows the statistics that Aaron stated. He won by 40,000 votes in the lowest election, with one exception, in 20, the lowest turnout election in 25 years. He knows that. He's got smart people around him. He sees the numbers. He knows that that puts him in a, in a vulnerable spot. And so, therefore, he likes the numbers he's getting, and he's doing everything in his power to keep that cocoon of inevitability around him, which is the dumbest strategy for electing anybody I've ever heard in my life. Well... <laughs> I, I I think what he's done so far, um, and I'd like in a minute to, to have you push that a bit, but um, he, his style and substance so far seem to be um, in sync pretty well, in that I, I said pretty much, you know, five or six weeks into his governorship that if if Tom Menino was the urban mechanic... Uh, Charlie Baker is the the state's town manager, and and that's the, the way I see his 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 persona. Um, it it's interesting though that um, I'm I'm intrigued with this idea that that being too comfortable in this cocoon is a dumb strategy. Yeah, me too. We, well, we need I, some amplification. Well, I, I, <laughs> I, I, I can I can imagine. <laughs> You know, that's one of those things like a journalist would say, oh, that was a good line. What did I mean by that? What did I mean by that? You, however, John, are much more thoughtful than those of us in the press. So what do you mean by that? That, that well, intrigues it, me. I think it in, when, when your goal is to preserve a popular base as, as represented by early poll numbers, which yeah. are inherently loose. loose. Right. They're not – exactly. They're, they don't really mean much. Um, then you start making operating decisions that impact your politics. So, for example, when the Commonwealth of Massachusetts is seeking to move into the leadership on transgender rights, you have no opinion because you understand some of your base doesn't like it. Some of them does like it. You're trying to project that you're some kind of half-assed Democrat and you're trying to be liberal and this and that and everything. But you don't know. You're not ready. It's not quite – ah, we're not saving. So when people say, how come your agenda you're not pushing? He says, my job is not to push the legislature. Well, of course it is. Of course it is. That's how the system is designed. When there's, a, when there's an effort supported by Airbnb to tax Airbnb, supported by every part of that industry, says level the playing field and we're happy to compete with these guys. Governor Baker signals yes. He signals no. When the aforementioned attorney general enforces our long-established assault weapons ban, Charlie Baker seems to be in favor of it until he gets opposition, and then he's retracting from it. That kind of indecisiveness maybe does sound a little like a town manager who's trying to figure out what the selectmen want to do and the town meeting might do, and that skill is good in that job, but the governor's job is to lead. You know, it also See, sounds I, I, to me... Oh, yeah, sorry, I, gotta... well, I was going to say, I, I'm not so sure at the moment... 
that that's the the, the best default position. Um, Which position? To, to, Baker's no, position the big, or John's no, no, position? no. John's conception. I mean, it, it's. I don't disagree with a single thing you're saying, but until you get to the, you know, the governor's job is to lead. It can be, but um, these are treacherous times. And I'll tell you, th- th- there's something that really struck me today in, in the New York Times, a, a piece in the Upshot, um, which is. For, for those people who don't know, the sort of number-crunching arm of the New York Times, where it, it's, you know, one of these classic pieces about inequality, and your eyes sort of glaze over because, oh, yes, inequality is bad. We all know that. But what's interesting about this is this was this took a look at the varieties. How does inequality manifest itself in all 50 states? Well, let's, let's forget about 45 of those. In New England... <laughs> In New England, five out of the six New England states, there are six New England states, right? Uh, I'll have to go to Google for that. So um, (laughs) in that only that that the rich have gotten richer and the poor have gotten marginally better off in 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 five of the six states in Massachusetts and Connecticut. The middle class has, you, you know, taken the taken it on the chin, more into, I think it's Massachusetts, Connecticut first, Massachusetts, Maine and New Hampshire, and then Rhode Island, which is because of a number of statistical anomalies coming from it being such a small state is a little harder to measure. But that tells me, and that's a very odd playing field for politics. And, and the, the reason why I think it, it, it says that this might not be a time to be out there stridently leading um, at least until election time, is let's take the MBTA. Um, I keep being torn. I'm a little surprised, although I shouldn't be, that the, the Baker administration appears to be going to go for privatizing the, 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 the T workers. I, I don't really like, I'm speaking as, an, as a voter, I don't like sort of the way the T has been run. But my individual bus driver is mm-hmm. largely, they got me through as bad as it was during the blizzard. They were there with me <laughs> on the bus. The drivers of the trains were there with me on the trains. It's not their fault that the stuff wasn't working. And those men and women did a really good job. But, you know, so on the one hand, I, I think what I'm evincing here is sort of the classic working class democratic solidarity and in, in, in not just working class. But on the other hand, you look at the numbers and you say, well, wait a second, middle class incomes have been going down in, in, um, in Massachusetts, down in New England. Now, that doesn't mean that people lose their hearts and souls, but I think it does make the people a little less sympathetic. You, you know, and I'm just using the T because it hasn't played out yet, you know, this, this whole thing. And, um, you know, take the mayor of Boston to compare with the Republican. You know, Marty Walsh does a hell of a job of appearing to be a leader, and he is a leader in some areas. But, you know, he hasn't been a leader on the cameras, you know, which Adam was covering today in court. I think politicians in general go along a lot more than... You're it also bears mentioning, and then I'm going to come sure. to you in 10 seconds. I got to <laughs> throw a little <laughs> jab at John here and note that his guy, Deval Patrick, was not appreciated in some quarters of the legislature because he was too aggressive a leader and was not 
collegial enough, did not show enough deference to the legislative process. So having said that, I want to turn to Aaron. Do you agree with John that when Charlie Baker is showing ambivalence on transgender rights or on Maura Healy's application of the assault weapons ban or on taxing Airbnb, that he is desperately trying to maintain the cocoon of his own likability? Or is he manifesting some genuinely conservative or Republican inclinations that are leading him to not take positions that it could be to his benefit to take? Sure. It's probably both. Name me a politician who doesn't like to be liked. Right. And I, I mean, I think as a social scientist here, the real the real question here is how does your governor act? Do they I call it the mushy middle, really technical terms here, sort of not offend every anyone. Don't go really conservative on social issues. It depends on the political context of your state. And while I respect Jim, uh, uh, when you look at the enrollment John. figures or sorry, ooh, that was really the too. The no, right, right, too. Right. I've been um, called worse. Don't right. worry. You know, it's, it's web audio. <laughs> it's should. podcast magic. You can say. Again. <laughs> right. Uh, while, while I respect your point on uh, the Democrats, um, ha- ha- that that it's hard to win as a Democrat uh, for the governorship, it's not. It, it, Massachusetts is structurally set up for Democrats to win, and they have still failed to do so. Yeah. Um, and I think that has a lot to do with the political context of the state. So when I look at Charlie Baker totally playing it safe, I think you're right. Like, I'm with you. I'm with everyone. I don't want to make anyone angry. Totally agreed. I think it's smart politics in a blue state. Who's going to primary Charlie Baker in Massachusetts? Mark Fisher. Oh, well, oh, yeah, good luck. Right. So th- these people that are angry at him. Right. Um, from his own party. Like this is as good as you're going to get if it was a really condi- it's a, if it's Ohio, I think you're right. Uh, if it's Ohio, then you do have to play to your base right now. I'm not saying uh, so. I think Charlie Baker has been smart given the political the political context that is going on in Massachusetts, and you know he's a new public management guy. He he wants to you know slowly privatize some of these these things, and I don't think he cares that much on most of these social issues. And when he's sort of going into treacherous waters, he's doing so to Adam's point with Democrats. He's got Marty Walsh and Maura Healy right there with him against pot and things like that. So I think I actually think it's a smart strategy because he wants to be liked, to your point, but is in part because Massachusetts, I don't think he has to worry about a real challenge from the right, especially because he's working very real um, work on party building. See, let me, John, throw something, uh, bounce something over your way. See, I think, I, I think Baker has a, a ultimately a fairly narrow focus that as as a as a uh, as someone who may be liked on the surface but is viewed underneath the surface with some hostility you know he's the brother-in-law he, he may be the well-liked brother-in-law but he's still the brother-in-law <laughs> he, to the he democrats he did lose the yeah right well <laughs> and it was a, it was yeah. a, it was a tight race you, you know um uh um but he focuses on the money, and it's really, to me, his his strength. It, and there are weaknesses in 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 what John was saying has made me think. I'm not sure they matter when you stack them up. That his strength, to me, it, it seems to me, is that he really gets concerned when it involves dollars, and and I, I think that you know he's he leverages that. 
point. No, how that but last. But I can imagine years. if Governor Baker were standing right here, I can imagine him. You know that the thing he does when he's feeling emotional. I, I've seen this a yeah. few mm-hmm. times. Sort of the the voice, like if his chest is constricted a bit, and I can like imagine with the, him with the fisherman. You mean? Uh, like like. We were being we were being so high minded. <laughs> I can imagine him saying. I almost went there. That's awesome. Well, I'm, I'm glad you did because that's that we, we've all kind of forgotten about that, right? Not, not all. I can imagine him. I can imagine him saying to you something like, well, let me tell you, Peter Kadzis, there weren't dollar signs in my eyes when I decided to tackle the opioid epidemic that I've seen destroy family after family from town X to city Y. I can imagine what he would say. And and what I I would say back is, you know, Governor, I have no doubt that your heart's in the right place. But in that instance, you know, your heart and your pocketbook are aligned. Um, it, it may be, listen, a lot of what we do, all of us, is clearer to outsiders than it is to us. Mm-hmm. And, and I'm not saying that, you know, every day in, um, you know, in their staff meeting, someone has a, you know, like, it's the economy <laughs> stupid sign up. But, you know, it's sort of, it's the budget stupid. And, and it's don't fight with the Democrats. You know that that I mean well that because has been... he 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 has an ally I think in um not not a I think he but, and I mean, Sal DeMacy uh, the Sal DeMacy Jesus <laughs> and magic of audio <laughs> the magic no 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 we these slips should stay you know we he and Speaker DeLeo I I think yep. temperamentally have a you know their their Rosenberg Healy you know I mean. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, I, th- I, I, I don't think know about Rosenberg. I'm I not. Think. Oh, I think As temperamentally do. they do, but I think you know Rosenberg's much more of a lefty. Right, uh, he'd prefer different, but it's harder to go after somebody that you actually kind of like and has well, forced. Yeah. You know, it just is. He's a good politician in that and, respect. And, th- and listen, that's his calculation. I I, I want to talk a little about this Democrat piece, but uh, what, Peter's point about that it's the focus on the budget, the numbers. I know that's what the governor wants to put forward. But we have had two austerity budgets in a row with a growing economy. Yeah. Right? And yes, it's true that the governor admirably, along with Mara Healy and others, have tackled this opioid crisis. But one of the things we all know is there are not enough beds. Open the damn checkbook and get some more beds. If you're losing that many kids and people every week, where's the bold stroke to fix that? I'm Listen, I'm not criticizing it because no, no, I think no, it is I, important. It, but in his budget, just his last budget, I, I want to quote Noah Berger, if I can. I wrote down from the last budget policy of liberal. I'm sure, I'm sure he wouldn't be offended. This budget represents another year of just barely getting by without any clear path to addressing the big challenges our Commonwealth faces, transportation infrastructure, college affordability, and expanding access to high-quality education to every student. There is no vision there. Maybe that's him and another thing him and HW have in common, that there's and, – and by the way, his current budget fixed almost instantly with some changes in assumptions – and taking $31 million out of the T operating budget to balance the state budget, that's not a f- an effective numbers guy. And then the, the, it's, the answer to it is, well, the T didn't have an operating deficit. No kidding. You just raised the fares on those kids right. trying to get to UMass yeah. Boston by 9%. And by the way, that's on top of the hundreds of dollars in public edu- higher education. And if there were more kids in dorms, that thing, they'd be spending over a grand more this year than last 
He is not afraid to put more money in. It's just who he's asking for. When we, let's take transportation. The citizens of the South Coast, again, good luck. We're going to have more meetings and more decades, and you're not going to get the public transportation. When GE arrives, they need a helipad? Ten seconds, hundred and fifty million dollars, and I love GE coming. But, I want GE. But to where, come. Is Peter, the, sorry, where is the Democrat who's got the guts to say we need a tax increase? But wait, wait, wait. Because but part no, of, before, no. wait a minute. Because we've been trying I'm to get scrum you. That's wait a minute. We've been Adam and I have been trying to gather Democrat Democratic office holders who are mentioned as gubernatorial candidates, and we can't get anyone to return our calls. I mean, the Democrats, to me, are, are just as short as vision, or maybe worse, they're short of courage. They won't say they're in favor of higher taxes, well, which is where John's going. And if that's true, yep. Charlie Baker's going to get reelected. And they're risk-adverse. That They're not new in politicians. But I think a big piece of this conversation we're missing, it, and it, it was prompted earlier, is Charlie Baker has benefited so dramatically from his comparison point being Donald Trump and in more recent days, the governor of Maine. (laughs) So he gets to many, all the policy that was just brought up, you know, I'll add to, you know, he vetoed early voting, you know, his initial, I'm not sure on transgender, the stuff on the MBTA and the privatization of janitors, higher education, all those things are problematic to most Democratic voters in Massachusetts. But he looks like the most reasonable Republican um, that ever came from on Mount compared to a Donald Trump and the governor in Maine. And so I, I think that's a huge aspect, uh, not only, but that's part of why he's popular, because he looks good compared to a really ugly, ugly contest on the Republican side. I wish I could describe the look on John Walsh's <laughs> face as you saw that. It was the sort of smile that went from <laughs> ear to ear. Uh, he's also, though benefited from, I think, and John, you might push back on this, from from a comparison in voters' minds with Deval Patrick, who yeah, was incredibly charismatic, great at laying out a vision for the state. And lo and behold, I, at least to me as a non-political professional, unlike you, Baker's early and intense popularity suggested that voters were ready for a, a contrast there, not just a contrast with the Republicans that Aaron's talking about. Is that fair? So... We don't have enough time for me to, to explain how you're wrong about Deval Patrick, and that's not the <laughs> point of our thing. But th- let's start with this. When Deval Patrick was elected, Massachusetts had lost population for two consecutive years, right? We were sort of not in – not just barely getting by. We were, as I'm going back here to look at Noah Berger's thing, no efforts. Deval Patrick laid out a clear vision. Yeah. And yes, I get it wasn't popular, and it wasn't popular in the legislature. It wasn't popular with Democrats in the legislature. By the way – Eight Republican governors were probably all more popular in the legislature than either Mike Dukakis or Deval Patrick. Because, and the voters get that, I think. If you strive, if you stand up for what you believe in, there are not many places where George W. Bush and Deval Patrick can be compared. But I know people who voted for Deval Patrick who disagreed with him but said, I know he's fighting for what he believes. Same thing W had. And that's the key. If you're going to win, you've got to stand up to these things. And and thinking that the Democrats in the lit, and this is, I love, well, I'm not the chairman of the party anymore, so I don't have to pretend I love them all <laughs> anymore. But but most of them, they're doing some good work, but they they are not the path to the corner office for a Democrat. 
By the way, just to argue with myself for five seconds before I shut up, <laughs> I, I remember that in the great big economic development bill that Governor Baker recently signed, one of the programs, and there might be more examples, but one of the programs was this, I, I forget the official name, but it provided for infrastructure improvements in gateway cities. And it was a program that was put in place by the, Governor Patrick. By Governor and Patrick. Governor Baker, in signing the bill, talked about what an incredibly valuable tool that has been for development in the gateway city. So there's one small example of can the I, vision that you're talking about. Well, I, I presume today, down on the south coast of New Bedford, there was an announcement about the unfortunately named wind farm. That's you're talking about a, the Dong thank you. wind farm? <laughs> that, is going to, that is going to build out of New Bedford. Thank you, Deval Patrick. I think I'm saying that because I don't expect that his vision and his courage and his leadership to spend public resources to establish that hub of economics, economic development in the South Coast was probably mentioned today. But that's what it is. It's that's that leadership is so important. No, the leadership was in. And I think one reason why why this served Deval Patrick so well is let's not forget Patrick left. As the two-term governor, you know, the de facto head of the Democratic, uh, of the establishment in Massachusetts, he began as an insurgent, which I don't have to tell you, but we should remind (laughs) him. He began as an outsider and he remained for a lot of time as an outsider. And he also followed a guy, Mitt Romney, who was so damn disconnected. You know, had so checked but, out uh, and who had no principles whatsoever, who had few, I shouldn't say no, well, had no. few well, the, principles. To, but to your earlier point, Peter, I, I think it's so good that what what Deval Patrick did was bold by being an outsider. To John's point, he declared a vision, a vision of government empowers you. Government is, um, you know, the state is at its worst if any of these folks are suffering. That is a social citizenship model. It was his last state of the union. And then Charlie Baker comes in. He has a vision. It's just a rather boring one. It's a new public management government will be efficient. Government's about the individual. Government's not about, you know, bringing everybody up into the polity and participatory democracy. So I definitely think Charlie Baker has a vision. But to John's point, it's not one that tends to get people terribly excited. And it's one that a good Democratic challenger, a challenger willing to go bold, could challenge if they're not afraid to do so. John, what are the rumblings on the inside of the party about about who's in? I mean, I've heard Seti Warren's name mentioned. I asked Dan Wolf when we were in, in uh, Philadelphia for the Democratic National Convention if he was doing it, and he said, you know, I, I'm really not sure what I'm going to do. I, he made it clear, I think, that he would love to seek the office but doesn't want to go on a suicide mission, politically speaking. So <laughs> what, as the guy who used to run the party and as the guy who helped Deval Patrick win yeah. two anomalous terms, what are you hearing? So the first thing I think, I'm going to tell you what I'm hearing, but I tell you what's important. At this point in the cycle, nobody knew candidate Deval Patrick. Nobody knew candidate Mara Healy. Nobody knew candidate Elizabeth Warren. Massachusetts is willing to go outside. Mm-hmm. Having said no, that, very, by the way, very Scott good Brown. points. Plural. Yeah. yeah, it's really important that there are people I hope that are thinking about this. Second of all, Professor O'Brien makes the point that Massachusetts has a very deep bench, right? The, two, the, the senator who's leaving, Senator Wolf, Mayor Warren, and a number of other mayors would be qualified and aggressive. Certainly Mayor Curtitoni is thinking about something. I'm not, I don't know what he's thinking about, but he's actively standing up for things he believes in. He, you have not only the two congresspeople in Kennedy and Moulton, but Catherine Clark would be a thing. 
I've believed for a long time if Jim McGovern ever stepped into a governor's race, he's the kind of guy who could win. And there's lots there. There are plenty of talented people on our side. Now, for me, thinking about how do we I, – I want somebody other than Charlie Baker inaugurated in 2019. The best path for us is a contested primary with as many of those good candidates in it as possible. That's the way we win. And then we, and we start early. We start on the ground. We understand. Here's the campaign plan on the back of an envelope. You got a governor who's won by 40,000 votes in the lowest turnout election in 25 years. With a flawed Democratic candidate. Well, I actually, that, that's know, a different I project. Disagree. I don't, I, I disagree like with her, that too. But a lot I, of people, the Democratic insiders, a lot of them oh, hated her. Oh, those Democratic insiders yes. are not the key to being governor. No, I, I just think she gets, I, I've Me been, too. Cr- I was critical mm-hmm. of her. Before, but I think I she gets a bum that. rap. Right. I agree with that. I think she gets a I bum rap. I think she rap. does too. But and, a lot of Democratic Adam's insiders going to like explode. Her. <laughs> that's been litigated. But, but, that's been no, litigated, I was just right? hanging on every word of John. I feel like we have the the Massachusetts politics version of of Carl Rove. If you flip party well, affiliation, well, that's actually that a, a coinage. That's a no, that's a coinage of Peters. No, I mean I feel like you're this mm-hmm. this sage when it comes. So so the so, game plan. Take us back. Well, I hope we run out of time before long because I know screw that. Up. I want to let's <laughs> let's close out. That was wonderful. No, but I think the game plan is simple for the Democrats: run to the left and turn out the cities. And if that happens, Charlie Baker is in a race. And then, what's the campaign like? Who's the candidate? What are the ideas? What's the vision? By the way, on taxes, if you have a Democrat that's averse to having this conversation, they shouldn't run in 2018. The tax is going to be on the ballot. That's going to ask the people who make a million bucks a year to kick in 4%. I just want to define that question a little bit. If you make $21,000 a week or less, you pay nothing extra on that. Nothing. For every extra hundred grand you make, we're going to ask you to throw in 30 or 40 bucks a week, a month. Understand He's good, isn't that he? there's <laughs> no chance that anybody running for governor in 2018 is going to avoid the issue of revenue. And when you get that issue on the table, you start understanding stealing $31 million for the T's operating budget and then saying the problem at the T is to lay off Peter's damn bus driver and replace him with somebody who'll work for minimum wage, that is a vision. I, the fact that you're and surprised... cut lines while doing it. Exactly. He would have to cut lines to communities that need it that aren't profitable. That are happy already. But you, I just want to say, Peter, you are an optimist. Too far. You're an optimist to say you're surprised that Charlie Baker went for privatization. That means you're not realizing, no, Kurt, and I don't mean to be critical, but that no, Charlie Baker's policy shop is the Pioneer Institute. Right. It's where he had his first job. His old man was one of their first funders. He's a pull yourself up by your own damn bootstraps kind of person. No, he is. But uh, I'll, I'll tell you, I'm surprised because it's like, oh my God, Charlie, you actually believe all of this? I mean, you you, yeah. you want to? I think you, that's all he believes. I mean, I I truly and I don't no, mean that in a right. it, to, He is me, a new public management guy. It's see, efficiency. Un, un, until it's privatized. I heard about the privatization and certainly the way they're going about it. Um. Uh, you know, the tea was a gift. The, the breakdown of the tea was probably the greatest gift to, to Charlie Baker. And he basically has handled it well up until now, I think. And, and I'm not all saying, it takes it, is one winner, no, right? We had such an easy winner. It, it does. But to, to but your point, it's I'll, a I'll tell long you, way out. Twice, I, I twice think in, a week ago, a week ago, the red line was sidelined for 45 minutes in August. People get when there's nine feet of snow. 
Right. No, but it's all. Listen, I take the tea all the time, and the tea's always that. Yeah, that's not. But you're not Mister Fix It. You didn't run as Mister Fix It. No, no, no. He but did. but it's his gift. The 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 um uh uh, uh pun, you, you know being tough with the subcontractors, the brooms as they used to be known up at the the courthouse, is one thing. You can get away with that. Might not be nice. I'm not saying fooling around with the drivers is a different thing. By the way, I'm not saying it won't work, but people know their drivers. All of a sudden, you don't, you, 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 you know, um, it, it's to me, it's like saying, whoa, wait a second, Charlie, you, you really believe all of this? No, you, you should believe some of it. Show some self-restraint. It, it's like, don't misread the mandate. It's 2010 Charlie Baker all over again. 2010 Charlie Baker, his policy prescription for an angry thing was lay off 5,000 state employees. 2014, nice, not angry Charlie anymore. It's nice Charlie. Of course I'm not going to do that. What's the very first thing he does? He lays off 5,000 state employees with the stupidest buyout plan economically and you ever. ship away at the bottom well, we after the janitors first well, you go the, the most vulnerable are the right. ones that are being hurt here and i don't think it's so much that you know your bus driver it means that the logical consequence of this of an efficiency government is lines to communities of color lines that aren't profitable and here i'm thinking buses eventually they're running less they're 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 being cut that's the kind of stuff that people i think really remember the western mass uh, Worcester is really sick of hearing about RT. Of course, Aaron. I well, think the, 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 there is that in in the the the, the, the playing to the suburbs is is um, is important too. I mean, what's interesting is Mike Dukakis was really the was elected on the suburbs. I mean, what John was saying about turn the city, you know, cities turning out is a big thing, but. The, the suburban vision. inequalities up. You know, as John was saying, if you can mobilize the cities. Yeah, he's saying Charlie Baker's vision for the state and saying it's getting so much better isn't your lived experience. And it writes itself. Sounds like Trump's way of campaign. You're, you're suggesting halt. that a Democrat could campaign against <laughs> Baker in the same way that Trump is campaigning against Hillary Clinton. Those are words I did not say. Well, that but was that, you know, Riley. But I think that jives with the whole, you know, there's been an economic recovery no, see, under I'll Obama, you, but a lot of people it, aren't feeling it's, it. It's, it's, no, po- it's possible for the Democrats. The trouble is most Democrats use the language of entitlement. And, you know, and, and I, I think that, again, it's not the poor Listen, no one wants to be poor, but if these numbers as reported by the New York Times are accurate, the rich are better and the poor in Massachusetts are better. It's the middle that is not better. And um, the, the, the way that most Democrats run and the way that the official party tends to run is with the language of entitlement. And that will not, that'll turn off a lot of voters. I always wish that we had more time for these things. This is a, but this is an especially acute uh, instance of me wishing we had more time because I feel like the conversation is really kind of white hot right now and I would love to keep it going, but we cannot. So I want to do a quick lightning round thing. First off, I can't let go unchallenged John Walsh. Your characterization of Governor Baker's buyout program is what was it? The dumbest buyout program ever? The stupidest buyout program ever? What are you talking about? Well, 5,000 people were given money to retire early. That only happens in a Republican administration because the numbers don't add up. It doesn't make sense to take – because everyone has this vision, and there may be a couple of state workers who have been there forever and not working that hard. Those people aren't taking it. They're at 80% already. They they don't work because their spouse doesn't want them to come home every day. They stay working. What you do in that situation – and you don't take – you don't – 
in the buyout, you don't lose the people that are just starting. You get the 52-year-old woman who's making the department run who thinks, well, with this extra five, I get up to 60%. And by the way, I still have the skills to go out and get another job. You got out the middle. You lost 40 uh, snowplow drivers on the Mass Pike. You lost 100 managers at DCR. That was dumb. That was dumb. And what? And who paid for it? The pension fund paid for it. And we're gonna, And who's paying for that? We're going to pay for it. What did you save in terms of future pension liabilities? What did you? Because most of those people are contributing at the lower at the uh, at the lower rate, right? What are you doing? You you in the end of the day, what you're only doing is you're shrinking government. And and some ad- enterprising reporter is going to go look at the people who left and what happened with their positions because they were mostly filled. They were mostly, many of them brought back on consulting contracts and they're hmm. now working for other people. It's, it's just the idea to shrink government. It's a Grover Norquist play. It's a hard right-wing Pioneer Institute play. It makes no fiscal sense. All right, my final question for you. We've talked about a whole bunch of big Democratic names. We didn't mention Mike Capuano. I wonder how Capuano might feel if, say, Donald Trump is elected president. Uh, have any of the people we've talked about or any other Dems who you're really excited about uh, have they picked your brain, you know, called you up to say, hey, John Walsh, you helped develop. And what are their names? Yes. <laughs> Thank you, Aaron. Right. Yes. Um, I'm not going to answer that question. I've talked to people who are thinking about running and I've encouraged them all. And because I do think the contest is what's going to make the difference for us. And that and that and that that contest of ideas, that contest of strategies, that contest of policy provisions. And to the degree they're going to listen to me, I mean, most of the people who would listen to what I say today would go, oh, great. Get me away from that. And so we need a candidate who matches Deval Patrick's greatest strength. And Deval Patrick's greatest strength as a candidate, as we talk about, was excellent, was he was not afraid to lose. He was amongst the most competitive guys I've ever seen in my life. He started at zero. At the end of his first term, he was at 30. His second campaign, he won going away. And he closed his term, according to a, a Paul from your public uh, radio competitor. Hey, the that's Hollis, enough of that. The, 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 at, at a, his, his public uh, yeah. thing was plus 25 as he walked out the door. People respond to that. John, throughout this whole conversation, uh, in Aaron, things you both said, I kept thinking to myself, the problems with the Democrats are, is rather, they don't have someone who's, uh, they need someone not afraid to lose. Right. Someone like... When Bill Weld was not a good candidate, but when he ran for attorney general, you, you know, that was the making of, of Bill Weld. Um, and he won. And, right? Well, ultimately, he won. I, I mean, but what, what, it, it, it's that willingness to sort of risk it all in a high-minded way. Right. I, I think so if I could add one last thing, and Aaron, the, in other words, to what I take away from this whole conversation is – if Charlie Baker is going to be beaten by a Democrat, the odds are it's a Democrat none of us have thought of right now, if you give past history. Both these guys look really reluctant, which means uh-huh. that John, if he could divulge his private conversations, might be uh, <laughs> might be taking issue with you. But I like that idea. As a journalist, I'd love to cover a race like that because like watching Patrick's too. rise was phenomenal. It was really – you felt like you were witnessing something historic. So can I ask one thing? As a journalist, if those kind of people get in – don't watch it for so long. Report on it. Hey, as soon as I... <laughs> I, I wasn't know you aw- guys were exceptional. I was not aware of Deval Patrick's candidacy until Frank Phillips wrote that piece in The Globe introducing him to everybody. And, you know, ideally you're not going to just neither. follow The Globe. But I remember sitting down with Deval Patrick before he was governor 
at the Omni Parker house and having this long, wow, wow. riveting conversation with him. <laughs> no, it was, it was, and you know, he had, he had uh, sent that letter to friends urging them to ask their kids what their priorities were when it came to state government. And everyone was making fun of him. And I kind of asked him a snarky question about that. He said, well, I take your point, but that this was the way he wanted to approach it. And look where it got him. Aaron, let's give the final yeah. word to you. All John right. outlined his plan for the playbook for, for whichever Democrat sure, emerges right. from this competitive primary to take on Charlie Baker. What would your, uh, you've sort of implied it a little bit with some of what you've been saying, but what would your playbook look like? Uh, well, I, my takeaway from this conversation is there's a lot of room for Democrats. I mean, I think most people, when they tune into the podcast, they're going to hear, they're going to think, okay, it's Charlie Baker. Charlie Baker's going to run away with it. But uh, the conversation I've heard here today is that there's a lot of room and there's not room just for one candidate. It's not that the, the savior Democrat has to run, that there's several Democrats that could run if they're running to the left and they start Trump's, hopefully, no longer on the table. Charlie Baker doesn't benefit from that comparison. He, his policy positions that we've talked about here get examined a lot more closely. And without the comparison to uh, a major Republican Party gone wild. And I also think, you know, when we look at the bottom economic tier, if you're wanting, you know, the, this report came out last or this past week um, that the raise in the minimum wage, they're like, we've seen a 7 percent increase for workers. That is 66 cents. That is nothing, right? So I think there's a lot of time left. There's two years. And if you're listening and if you're a Democrat who's running or if you're one of the many Democrats in Massachusetts, it sounds like it could be a lot more competitive than most of us had uh, thought. There we go. All right. Aaron O'Brien, John Walsh, Peter Kansas, thank you all for taking the time to kick this stuff around. Thank you. going to do it for this episode of the scrum by the way we're about to start pumping out new installments every week and we'd love to get your thoughts on topics we should be covering and people we ought to interview so please email us at scrum at wgbh.org that address again scrum at wgbh.org you can also find us on itunes on various podcatchers and online at blogs.wgbh.org slash scrum I'm on Twitter, at Riley Adam, and Peter is at Kadzis, K-A-D-Z-I-S. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News. Thanks for listening.